Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. I'm Alana Rangi. you probably heard anything about bees was after the honeybee colony collapse last year. Well, the honeybees seem to be doing fine this season, but I couldn't help wondering about the rest of the bees. Rest, you ask? Yes. It turns out that there are more than 200 species of bees in New York City alone, ranging from giant fuzzy bumblebees to tiny ant-sized bees. This week, we go on a bee hunt with some experts and learn about a bee tracking program aiming to monitor local bee species in the city. This podcast is a rebroadcast of our program, which aired on August 14th, 2009. So we've left the American Museum of Natural History with Liz Johnson, who's the manager of the Metropolitan Biodiversity Program here at the Museum of Natural History. So we're going to take a bee walk this morning. The weather is a little bit unfortunate in that there was a torrential downpour this morning. But Liz, are you hopeful about the bee situation? For today, yeah. The sun's peeking out, it's a really warm day, so it could be a perfect day for bees to be visiting flowers or out and about. We walked to the Shakespeare Garden in Central Park, right behind the Delacorte Theater off 81st Street. The garden is in full bloom, and lucky for us, the bees are in full action. Yeah, let's see if we can find oh, a bee. Oh wow, there's so many. This is a fennel plant, it actually Johnson runs something called the Great Pollinator Project. The Great Pollinator Project is a collaboration between us at the Center for Biodiversity and Ed Toth, who is the director of the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation's Greenbelt Native Plants Center. So we started the project in 2007. Everyone's been concerned about the decline of the honeybees, the colony collapse syndrome. But what people really haven't focused on is the honeybees are just one of thousands of bee species. And really, we know very little about our native bees, which are actually out there doing most of the pollination. The Great Pollinator Project collaborates with a similar initiative in San Francisco called the Great Sunflower Project. Both of these programs aim to monitor local, native bee species that don't get as much media buzz as the honeybee. There are more than 200 native bee species in New York City, and those make up only a fraction of the more than 20,000 known bee species around the world. The Great Pollinator Project's biggest challenge was figuring out how to collect as much data as possible from as many geographic areas as they could. Their solution? Citizen scientists. Citizen science is a sort of a growing field, if you will. It's used a lot for people who conduct bird surveys. So the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has extensive citizen science programs. And there are a fair number of calling amphibian surveys where people are doing frog work and, and other things like that. Because we were adopting some of the protocols from the Sunflower Project, and that was based on a citizen science component, we thought that would work here as well. Citizen science bring a wealth of information to us. They all our eyes and ears out throughout the city observing and taking photographs and sending them in, so that's helpful in that way. And they enable us to gather way more data than we could ever do by ourselves. The data they collect will help the project reach some of their key goals. What we want to do overall is to raise a public awareness about native bees, why they're important and what we can do to better protect them and enhance habitat for them. We also want to improve habitat overall in the city. So we're working closely with the New York Parks Department on, on looking at ways to enhance pollinator habitat. 
and we want to have a better understanding of bee distribution throughout the city. And so that's some of the work that's being done through the museum and Dr. John Asher. And lastly, we have our citizen science component, and that's one where we're really trying to get a sense of pollinator service. And by looking at how quickly bees arrive to pollinate flowers and the frequency of their visitation, we're looking at that and correlating that with surrounding land use so we can have a better sense of what's going on. Johnson and I have been checking out bees in the garden for a couple of minutes, and we've also been waiting for Kevin Madison and John Asher to show up. Madison works on the Great Pollinator Project with Johnson, and Asher studies bees. From behind the bushes come two young guys, equipped with giant insect nets and knapsacks. Asher also has a digital camera dangling from his neck. I barely have a chance to say hello before both of them have leapt into the gardens, swooping their nets over bees I haven't even noticed. In the back there. Oh, wow, it's huge. What well, kind of actually, plant is it small. on? It's small. It's a worker. It's a worker female. I'm John Asher from the American um, Museum of Natural History. I'm the manager of the bee database project. We map bee distributions and put label data from the museum's collections online at a website called discoverlife.org. So what kind of bee is it? Asher quickly sweeps his net over a flower, and from the depths of the mesh, he pulls a squirming bee. He holds the bee between his thumb and his forefinger. Oh, wow. This is Anthophora terminalis. Okay. It's a native bee that digs its nest in rotting wood. You can see the tip of the tail. Oh, yeah, he's got... Has bright red. Yeah. And that's why it's called terminalis. You can see her sting is sticking out. She's trying to sting your fingernail. Yeah. What are you holding on to? You've got her... I'm just holding on to her leg. Okay. Most of these bees are not very dangerous. The honeybee is really the most dangerous one. Really? Yeah. Uh, the reason is that honeybees have to defend their hive from uh, oh. predators like bears. And so they have a very strong defense in terms of sting. But these uh, native bees each build their own solitary nest. And so they don't have any big store of honey to defend. Right. So they don't need to be so aggressive. This bee is full grown? Yes. All of the, the bees you see as adults flying around are full grown. Okay. They do all their growing in the larval stage. Then they pupate, just like a butterfly or moth. And then when they become adults, they remain the same size. And in the social bees, of course, the queens are much larger than the workers. But once they become adults and have wings, they never grow anymore. And now, how do you know that this is a girl bee? Well, a couple of things. One, it has a sting. Okay. Is, Boys don't have a sting. Right. Also, it has more hairs in the hind leg that it uses to carry the pollen. Oh, wow. You can see the hairs in the hind mm -hmm. leg. Also, it has a dark face, whereas the male of the same species has a pale face or a yellow marking on the face. Wow, that's so cool. I can't believe he just caught a bee. Asher's a pro at catching bees, but he's more interested in photographing them. His small consumer level digital camera can capture detail on even the tiniest bees that you might normally need a microscope to see. These photos can then be cataloged and used for identification. Asher says that this basic technology has generated an interest in bees and gotten more people studying them. We walk over to an echinacea flower with long purple petals and a spiky domed orange center. A big bumblebee sitting on top and drinking nectar with its long tongue. Bees feed on the nectar and pollen of flowers and their zipping between blooms is essential to plant reproduction. Certain bees prefer certain types of flowers, which is why diversity kind, right? of bees is a very good thing. Asher's hand flashes in front of me. Wow, John's actually going to grab him with his hands. Look at that. You just picked him up with your hands. Yeah, I just picked it off the echinacea. You can hear him buzzing. This is the male big-eyed bumblebee. Now smell it. 
Smell it? Yeah. Asher's grabbed the giant bee between his fingers and holds it to my nose. Well, actually, this one doesn't smell. <laughs> it smells a little bit. I was like, I don't know how close. It does smell a little bit. What does she smell like? A little lemony. This is a male. Oh. That's why I'm holding it. If it were a female, it would have stung me by now. Ah. So how did you know it was a male right away? Look at the size of the eyes. Massive. See how big? Yeah, massive. The males have giant eyes so that they can more easily spot the female. But it's completely harmless, as you can see. Like yeah. all male bees, it can't sting. Also, the hind legs don't have any area to carry the pollen. You see that? There's no pollen yeah. basket or, or row of hairs. But they still have hair. Well, they have little they hairs. They have some hairs, but they're not long enough to hold the pollen effectively. So what is this male going to do all day? The same thing the female does? or? Like most male animals, it only has one thing on its mind. <laughs> Sex. Yes. Yes. Indeed. So well, really, all day he just looks for girl bees to go and. That's right. Have he sex hangs with. out on the echinacea and <laughs> occasionally sips nectar. And other than that, um, <laughs> looks for the lovely ladies. Indeed. Wow. Madison comes up behind us with a little vial. There are three bees inside: two tiny ones and what I would deem a medium-sized bee. Are these bees? Those are bees. They are really little ones. Yep. It looks like we have a. Uh, there's a leaf cutter bee there, which, which is one, the largest the big one? of the three, yep. And then there's two what are called masked bees, which are the ones that have a little bit of yellow on their legs and on their face. Uh-huh. And those are tiny. Most people would not know they were bees. They think almost of those look like bees. an ant almost, like a flying right. ant or something. Yeah, they're kind of interesting cuz they're not hairy like other bees, so they actually carry nectar and pollen inside in their crop. So they take it Internally, they carry it and then they regurgitate it. Um, so, whereas this one, the leafcutter bee, actually carries the pollen on the underside of its abdomen, which is basically the underside of its belly. And why is it called a leafcutter? What they do is the females will cut these sort of dime-sized cuts out of leaves. Uh, a lot of gardeners will notice these round cuts in their rose bushes mm-hmm. and wonder what's cutting these perfect circular cuts out of their rose, and, and it's often these leafcutter bees. And what they do with them is they don't do it just for fun. It actually has a purpose, which is to line their nest cavity. And then within each cell that they create with these, these cuts of leaf, there's a, a different larva developing for, the, for the, the young bees developing for the next wow. generation. How do they know to eat in a perfect circle? That's a great question. That's one of those things, I, I guess, through evolution. And maybe it, it made a lot of sense for them to have a nice circle. <laughs> yes. You know, after five minutes of bee hunting, I've already seen about six different kinds of bees. I ask Madison whether or not there's some sort of field guide to identify all these species. It's kind of tough. They're so tiny, and still we're at the point where we need them under a microscope to identify many of them to species. What that entails is catching them and unfortunately sacrificing them and curating the collection that you have and trying to study it and look at it under a scope to see fine details like how many segments in their antennae, what the veins in their wings look like. So you can imagine this isn't the kind of thing that lends itself very well to a typical field guide. Because there are so many types of bees, and because they can be tricky to identify, Madison and Johnson had to be strategic when they were creating the citizen scientist component of the Great Pollinator Project. They asked participants to sit in front of a plant for no more than 15 minutes, or until five bees come to the flower, whichever happens first. The bee watchers are asked to record where they are, what kind of plant they're watching, and what time each bee landed on the plant. Identifying the type of bee is optional because it can be hard for the untrained eye. The more important thing, says Johnson, is seeing how many bees are active. 
There are 12 plants participants can collect data from, and Johnson says these have been carefully chosen for their popularity with bees. From a statistical design standpoint, you want people to be looking at the same species so that you can make comparisons. You want to make sure that they're all looking at the same kind of plant because other plants might be more attractive or less attractive to bees. So the Sunflower Project is using one species of sunflower, and so we're all doing the exact same thing. We added our own native species to our New York City project because we wanted to have something in bloom throughout the whole season. So we've picked native plants because they depend better and, and interact more naturally with our native pollinators. And we also pick things that will bloom at different times of the season. So we have things that bloom in, in June, July, August, and into September. Having my morning crash course on bees and bee watching, I'm headed to Brooklyn. Madison has recommended a citizen scientist I can talk to to see exactly how the project works. I find her in a community garden a few blocks west of Prospect Park. My name is Jessica Katz. I'm a native New Yorker. I live here in Brooklyn in Park Slope. And uh, I'm a freelance photographer at the moment, and I'm a member of the 615 Green Community Garden. So we're actually at the community garden right now, right? Yes, we are. Can you describe what it's like? Well, this is uh, an unusually lush and complex community garden. Um, it's the site of an uh, old gas station that was purchased by uh, the bounty of, and generous donation of, of an anonymous benefactor in the neighborhood back in the 1990s and is now permanently preserved for public use by the community. So how did you get involved with I'm a perpetually curious person and I've always been interested in, in insects. Uh, I, I was one of those geeky kids that actually collected spiders and kept them in jars in my garage when I was a kid. Now you actually have rallied some other people from your community. To exactly. Um, initially I went to one of the, the Bee Watchers orientations and um, was able to get some of the uh, seedlings of the plants that the researchers are interested in using for observations. Brought them back to the garden um, at our monthly meeting, discussed the project with our garden members and because we are so democratically oriented, uh, we took a vote and, uh, and validated the project and uh, uh, agreed to uh, plant the plants around the garden and do observations and be part of the project. How many people around this garden are bee uh, watchers? At this point, there are probably about a half a dozen, but we've planted the seedlings over the last two weeks. And so the target plants haven't really flowered yet, but some of the other plants that are also part of the study were already planted here in the garden, especially the uh, echinacea which is very commonly planted here. So we already have plants in flower that we can start doing our observations immediately, which is and great. They love that echinacea. They love to put their little nectar. It's it so is a bee magnet. It's them. unbelievable. It's and it's such a gorgeous flower. It just has this beautiful iridescence to yep. it. Kat shows me an area of the garden populated with bee-watching plants. Um, the process is, is very simple, and, and one of the things I really like about the model of the way the project is structured is that it allows people to get engaged at, at any level that they're interested in pursuing. The, the basics is that they have provided us with seedlings of plants to use for observations and a little questionnaire to fill out to describe the environmental conditions. Is it sunny, what the temperature is, what bees we're seeing? And they've broken the bees down into several different easily identifiable groups so that we don't have to be entomologists to be able to participate in the program. We can basically just check off from which group are the bees that we're seeing 
and then provide them with the data online. The beauty of this kind of citizen science project is that we can do data collection that individual researchers could not ever hope to do because there can be so many more of us providing them with data that they can then create an enormously sensitive and flexible database that is very sensitive to change over time and can give them a longevity study that they could really never do as an individual researcher. So it's like it's a win-win-win-win all around. Johnson agrees and says that when the study gets enough data to analyze, they hope they can map bees throughout the city. I guess what it will tell us is it'll give us a view into what the habitat in the area is like. Our, the hypothesis is that if you have good habitat for bees, then you'd have good healthy populations of bees that could then pollinate and arrive at your garden or your plants very quickly and and do a nice pollination job. And if you don't get bee visitation from certain parts of the city, we would assume that maybe there's the habitat's not there. And so once we have a sort of a map of the five boroughs and where we are getting really great visitation from bees and other areas where there just seems to be a lack of activity, we could then look at how we're going to enhance management there. Or could we set aside new protected areas or work with homeowners and have them do simple things in their little backyards or at the end of their street to add, improve habitat. What is the perfect bee habitat? Perfect bee habitat would be right next to each other, great food and great place to nest. So you'd want to have an area for a ground nesting bee of nice loose soil that doesn't get trampled by lots of visitors. And then near that you want to have all kinds of flowering plants so that you have something in bloom throughout the whole season so there's a constant pollen and nectar supply. To find out more about how to make your neighborhood more bee friendly or to become a bee watcher yourself, log on to greatpollinatorproject.org. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. You can't get enough of Science in the City? You should try following us on Twitter. Visit us at www.twitter.com slash city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our new website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org. And as always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.